What's up, everybody? We get so many questions about conspiracy theories on cases that we're following on this channel, about what ifs. And someone said, Pete Sardis and I have known each other for over 20 years, and we usually see eye to eye, but there are some things we see very differently. I'm going to follow the case. Pete's going to bring in the theories. What is mainstream media saying? What are the reports saying? Is it real? Is it fake? Did it come in at trial? And we're going to discuss it because as we've seen in trials, one side or the other can do something that makes previously inadmissible evidence come in by opening the door. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcast. Let me know what you think in the comments. What's up, everybody? Today, we are going to answer a question I've gotten over and over again about Brian Koberger and this Idaho 4 case. Very high profile, a lot of leaks coming out, a lot of people talking about it, making guesses, coming up with conspiracy theories potentially of what happened and why it happened. Uh, so much so that the court issued a gag order, a non-dissemination order, restricting the speech, the comments, the reporting, and the access to the news on this case. Many people are appalled. People are calling it unconstitutional. And they've asked questions like, is this the only case this has ever happened in? Is this unprecedented? Are there any, any other high-profile cases or just cases in general that have something similar to this. So to break down gag orders on this case and other cases, I've got Pete Sardis here with me again to talk about this topic generally and then as it applies to certain high-profile cases. So Pete, to jump into the discussion, uh, what just what is a gag order? What's a non-dissemination order? All right. The, the basic concept is a gag order is designed to keep people that know about a case from talking about it outside of the confines of a courtroom or during proceedings. That's really what it's supposed to do. Okay, why? What's the purpose of a gag order? Oh, the purpose really is to kind of prevent lawyers from going out there and, and talking about the case, at which point you get all that outside publicity. So you're trying to make sure that a defendant gets a fair trial. You're trying to make sure that you know there's not mobs outside of courthouses waiting to hear information. You're trying to make sure that the, the case does not get litigated in the street as opposed to in the courthouse. Right. We don't want to poison a jury pool. We don't want people to hear somebody say something and run with it. If we look back to documentaries like Making a Murderer, Making a Murderer, is that what it's called? With uh, Stephen Avery, yeah. who was convicted and then um, exonerated and then convicted again, where the prosecutor comes out and literally tells everybody he's guilty, talks about the evidence in a one-sided manner, not even in an admissible way, uh, basically poisons the entire jury pool of their local county. That happens sometimes from the prosecutor, from the defense, from other people in the courtroom, and a gag order puts the kibosh on that, stops that. We want to make sure this criminal defendant and the state has a fair opportunity to try the case in front of a jury um, of fair and unbiased people who do not know about the case and don't have preconceived notions and have already made up their mind before they step foot in the courtroom. So that's the really the main purpose of a gag order. But they have to balance rights, right? Because we have the right. Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial for the criminal defendant. What rights oppose and what people oppose gag orders normally? Okay. Normally, the people that oppose the gag orders is the media. 
the press wants to have access. And from their perspective, not only, and let's be honest, I'm not sure if they really care about the Sixth Amendment right to uh, you know a fair a trial on the part of the defendant, but what they are trying to safeguard is that First Amendment right to free speech and freedom of the press. And they want to make sure that there is a, an overarching theme from you know the beginnings of this country. And, and I'll, I'll quote it for you. It's to guard against the miscarriage of justice by subjecting the court system and those that are part of it to public scrutiny. Open courtrooms have always been kind of the standard in this country, so that justice doesn't get done behind closed doors. Yeah, we're not going to stand up here and say that the media has these pure um, motives for doing things. They want to make money. They want to get the clicks. They want to be the one to break the news. But in reality, as a society and as the public, they serve a purpose and are important to the transparency of the judicial process, whether it's civil or criminal justice system. And the fact that we, the people, are going to be the ones that are affected by this. We elect judges or judges are appointed by elected officials in most states and most jurisdictions. Well, are they good judges? Are they bad judges? Are there good prosecutors and bad prosecutors, good public defenders and bad public defenders? Obviously, private attorneys, you get your own choice. But outside of that, this is one of the ways that you as a citizen of whatever city, state, county, jurisdiction you're in, you get to see and have public access to the courtroom, to the judges, to the lawyers, to the people that can affect the judicial process of the jurisdiction that you are in. It is important that you see how that process works, that you know how that process works. Because if you don't know, then it's even more scary than it might seem to a normal layperson. And if you get railroaded by the system or somebody else gets railroaded by the system, if you see that, it should be subjected to public scrutiny, like that quote says. We should be able to step in and stop that as the public. And one of the ways that we do that is with public access. And, you know, you can talk about a little bit of how it was in England and why we had the revolution and how things would happen behind closed doors, under the table. One guy would make the decision and there's nothing you could do about it. And that's what we wanted to change here, which is part of the access to the courts and the public nature of these proceedings. Right. And the truth is, if you go back that far, Magna Carta times and kind of going towards 1776, there were two standards of justice. There was a standard of justice for the people, and then there was a standard of justice for the upper classes. And all these things happened behind closed doors. And if you even look at some of the movies, you know, the Gangs of New York, where they're just, all right, rind up some guys, we're going to hang them. Uh, why? Because it's good press, you know, it's good publicity. We're doing, we're tough on crime. And you, you, I don't want to say that all this stuff is going to happen because of gag orders in place, but they fight these things because at the end of the day, the public access to the court system is fundamental. I mean, it's in the First Amendment of the Constitution. <clears throat> and that's why I think there's this balancing act is a lot more difficult than it seems because it is really important to not have all of this evidence leaked in certain ways. But I also think just putting a total kibosh on it is not appropriate as well. I think hearings should be open. Yeah. Um, I don't think we need, as the public, every piece of evidence or every deposition or every even potential thing that might come in at trial. We don't need access to all of that. But if it's something that is going to come in at trial, if it's something they're going to have a hearing on a motion to suppress because law enforcement you know, may have done something wrong, that stuff should be publicly available right. and we should be able to see exactly how it happens. And people are starting to see, because they have this access with cameras, with uh, microphones in the courtroom, they're starting to notice the judges, the cases, the states, the jurisdictions that don't allow it. And they are starting to wonder, are they trying to hide something? 
And that's why one of these big questions here in this case is why such a strict gag order? So one of the questions about it is how strict should it be? How uh, restrictive should it be? Um, how vague can the, can the language be? And people have called out that this one is unconstitutional for one way or the other when we're talking about this Koberger case. Um, but it is not unprecedented. This is not the only case to have a gag order or a non-dissemination order. This is not the only high-profile case or celebrity case. Let's talk about some of the other cases yeah. throughout our history that have had non-dissemination orders. And the truth is, you're right. A, a gag order really is not the norm. It is very rare. And it's normally designed to protect something, somebody's interest, because the case is either so high profile or think of it a different way. There are national security issues at risk. So you want to make sure that no one's disseminating this stuff. I mean, let's kind of go back and just recent uh, you know, history. O.J. Simpson. If you remember the criminal trial, everybody watched it. I mean, you may be a little too young for this, but I was in in high school. We were watching the O.J. Simpson trial at every minute of every day because it was you know mm -hmm. being televised. There was a civil case after that. It was called Rufi versus Simpson. It was basically the civil matters that came after the um, the not guilty verdict. And the court, as Judge Fujisaki, actually issued a what's called a sweeping gag order. No parties, no witnesses, no lawyers, no one could disseminate anything to the media or in the public or have discussions outside of the courtroom about anything that happened inside of the courtroom. Um, and the reason <clears throat> so they real quick, did that, yeah. Real quick, before you get to the depositions. Um, so that would even be something that's more broad than is happening in Coburger because they're not saying that the victim's families can't speak out or even some potential witnesses, but the lawyers can't. And the courtroom personnel can't, the law enforcement officers can't, and agents of the law enforcement officers or defense attorneys or prosecuting attorneys can't, but they're not totally putting the kibosh after they amended the non-dissemination order. Cause at first it seemed like it was encompassing witnesses and victims and everybody. Now they're saying it doesn't, it's kind of confusing people rightfully so are better safe than sorry. They don't want to take the chance as a victim or a witness saying something about this case. And then the court calling you in saying you violated a court order. So that's one of the issues as well. But there are cases, and it seems like this O.J. Simpson civil case, I don't remember it personally. I was mm -hmm. nine years old. Um, it seems like that one was even more broad than the one we're dealing with here. And how did it actually play out throughout right. the case? And you got to understand that we're talking about a case back in 1996. So the media exposure the uh, was a lot less. The, the access. Yeah, it just wasn't the same. So what wound up happening was, and frankly, O.J. Simpson's lawyers, I think, invented the concept of disseminating deposition videos and transcripts to the media. And what they would do is they would use basically the LA Times to publish all this stuff, the purpose of which was to try this case in the court of public opinion so that when the jurors showed up to court, there was, uh, I guess, a, a heaviness on them to make sure that they get the verdict they wanted to get. And of course, they were trying to taint as, much, as many people as broad of a net as they possibly could. And the judge figured it out. He's like, we're not doing this. You know, you can't get, you know, have this be in the news every time something happens and doing press conferences about it so that I'll never be able to get a jury ever selected in this case. Yeah. And I, if we think about the uh, Deshaun Watson civil mm -hmm. case that happened just recently, Tony Busby and uh, what's his name from Texas that represents all the athletes. What the heck's his name? You'd know his name if, if I said it. I can't remember. Very famous uh, defense if, attorney. If, if you wouldn't have said athletes, I would have known. The honestly, like these lawyers were in the news all the time 
Lawyers use the media. Lawyers give complaints to the media. Lawyers hold press conferences. So it's not like people are totally innocent and this is totally overreaching and totally unfair. The point is judges want to protect the process sometimes, and they don't want lawyers to get in the way and try the case in the court of public opinion. We saw it happen in the Johnny Depp case as the trial was going on as well. People start forming strong opinions, especially today's day and age when you have access to celebrities um, via social media and whatever, however you want to look at it. And, and bad things can happen with too much access. And I say sometimes is we can ruin a good thing. So we've got to be respectful when we do get access. We've got to look at it the right way. We've got to not jump to conclusions and we have to not personally condemn people publicly and go after them or the court will rightfully restrict our access as the public. That is what it is there for. So the way that we act can actually affect how this stuff continues on in the future. Uh, what's the next case? <clears throat> Another big one, uh, again, maybe before your time, Timothy McVeigh. Most people know him as the Oklahoma City bomber. The judge in that case, now we're talking back in 1997, about the same time frame, 12-page gag order. Now, understand that was a different case because that was a case of domestic terrorism. So they not only didn't want the media presence to know what's going on inside the courtroom because of public opinion, they also were protecting a lot of what wound up being national security issues. So the judge had a huge order. No one could say anything to anybody. Basically, you couldn't discuss this case unless you were in open court. The doors were sealed. Everything was closed up. Media had no access, but for whatever was on the docket. So whatever would happen at the end of the day would be on the docket. They would The court would release certain items, and that would be the access that you had for this trial. Now, understand, um, that case wound up, obviously, Mr. Timothy McVeigh was convicted um, and he appealed, the appeal was over. When the appeal was over, the judge lifted the stay. So then opened it up to say, all right, now lawyers, you know, prosecutors, cops, you all can talk about whether or not you think McVeigh was or should have been guilty or innocent. But he's, the judge still did not unseal all the proceedings, the documents that happened in that case. So when the time came, I think it was a good decision by the judge. When the time came that it was no longer a matter of public, uh, you know, at issue in the public, it wasn't on the news every night. They opened it up and said, now you can talk about it. It's over, but you can't disclose any of the documents. You cannot uh, disclose anything that may be a national security issue. Yeah. And I think that brings us into like federal court and how mm -hmm. there, and there is non-dissemination orders basically on every case. Um, right. And it's in federal court. There's some sort of a gag on what you can do, what you can see, what you can access. But national security, I think, is an additional layer that comes up sometimes in cases that, again, when you're doing this balancing act, now you're adding in a public interest on the other side, a public interest on the, the side that wants to gag, that wants to stop information from getting out because it actually protects the public. So again, it kind of changes how the analysis is done. Uh, what's the last case we've got? Last one, the Michael Jackson child molestation case. Apparently, uh, this was so bad when the uh, prosecutor was uh, trying to indict Michael Jackson for molesting children at Neverland. They had a grand jury. So the media was outside of the courtroom and they would videotape and they would basically harass all of the grand jurors as they were going in and out of the courtroom. Apparently, there were mobs of people around the courthouse. And ultimately the judge is like, we can't have this. We're going to have a, a riot outside of the courthouse. And basically the gag order was 
Nobody can film the, the grand jurors. No one's talking to them while they're in their deliberations. And the judge shut the courtroom down and told the, prosecu uh, the prosecutors, the defense lawyers, no one talks about this case until it's done. And that we'll never one, get a jury. Yeah, that one reminds me a little bit of kind of the other one we'll transition into as we get back to Koberger. We, we're not going to do point four on here. But um, so this that reminds me of there was no real gag order in place until they saw the actions of the media and people outside the courtroom. So in, in the Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell case, the uh, Colt um, mom murder trial that's going on right now, there was cameras, there was microphones, there was access to everything in the courtroom. There were certain things that were sealed for mental health issues um, and the minors being involved as victims. But for the most part, it was pretty open. Well, eventually we got less and less public access. And now at the trial, there are no cameras and there are recordings that are not released until the next day. That is a form of non-dissemination. And the media went out and had a hearing and uh, asked the judge to give them access back. They would work with them, one camera, not point the camera at Lori Vallow. But as happened in the Gwyneth Paltrow trial, as happened in the Johnny Depp trial, and was happening again here in the Lori Vallow situation, the cameras were over-sensationalizing the situation where they were zooming in on Lori Vallow, people were commenting on her hair and on her makeup and how she was doing this or doing that or what finger she was tapping. She's giving signals and they just took something. It was like when you give an inch and you take a mile, mm -hmm. um, that's what was happening here. Similar to the Michael Jackson situation where they felt like, and the judge felt like, you know what? That's it. We're pulling the cameras. Gwyneth Paltrow's lawyers had to complain multiple times because news outlets were violating the court's order of where you can put cameras. Don't put one directly on Gwyneth Paltrow's face the entire trial. There's no need for that for public access. They should be, the camera should be pointed at the microphones, people speaking, the lawyer, the judge, the witnesses, what's actually happening in the trial. This is not an opportunity for them to stalk Gwyneth Paltrow. And I think that is a good discussion point as to what is the purpose of public access, Pete? What is the purpose of people to be able to watch and see and hear what is going on in a courtroom? Because it's not for them to just dissect criminal defendants or civil plaintiffs or civil defendants. Well, yeah, the purpose is for the justice and the system of justice to be open, obvious, and notorious to the public. Meaning that anybody, for the most part, can go into any courtroom, sit down, and watch what's happening. And that's the check and balance to make sure that judges aren't overreaching, to make sure that justice is being done, not vigilantism, for example. Um, and, and that's really the purpose, is access to kind of keep the process in the public uh, in the public eyes so things are happening above board, not behind closed doors. And in order to do that, you do not need to watch Gwyneth Paltrow for however many days straight that trial went on. You do not need to see what kind of makeup Lori Vall is wearing when she walks into the courtroom. You do not need to see all that stuff in order to be open to the public. Now, if people start consuming it, like I think I uh, um, made the, the connection or the analogy of the Roman Colosseum where we're just watching people kill each other and they become sport for us to watch. That's not what it's for. And that's really what we need to, make sure we avoid, especially as people that talk about it publicly and that have conversations on podcasts, on videos, whatever, maybe with people in our um, circles, whether it be other lawyers or just friends that we know that people that have questions about this stuff, I think it's important in how we talk about it to make sure it doesn't turn into that. Or right. I do think 
that we could be going down a road where there are more non-dissemination orders and more gag orders and less access. Um, See, I think you got that. That's what I was going to say. Sorry. So that's kind of like my last question for you is yeah. with the cameras in the courtroom, microphones in the courtroom, all this extra access, people talking about it. Do you think we're going to see more or less non-dissemination orders going on in high profile cases? I think we're going to see more. And let me kind of take you back to a time that we had some cases that were high profile, but we're talking about a time where the judge would say to the jury, don't read the newspaper, don't watch TV. And to the media, they would say, you leave those jurors alone. No one talks to them until after the fact. Lawyers, whatever said in court is fine, but don't go out there. And I don't want to see press conferences in the front of the courthouse. And they, so that's pretty much the extent of what a gag order used to be. But now you're talking about media is everywhere in our lives. I can't tell you to not watch TV and, for example, don't read the newspaper because are you going to go home and look at your social media? Chances are something about that case is going to be on your social media feed. Oh, just on Chances your phone are, in a text message. Yeah, it's there. It's everywhere. It surrounds us. So it's impossible. I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult uh, to avoid a taint or, or some sort of a tainting based on a media for a juror. So that's kind of where I think you're going to start seeing the dissemination, non-dissemination or is going to saying, the judge is saying, it's not a matter of you can't have access to what's going on in the courtroom, but that access cannot be at the time when proceedings are happening. It's going to have to be after the fact so that you have the open interest of justice and you can see what's going on in the courtroom, but not live feed. And that's what people want. People want live feed. Yeah. And I also think that unfortunately it could potentially be happening earlier on in cases than it did in the past, because as we've seen in Murdoch and as we heard in Vallow, all of these additional questions about, it used to be, like you said, the first trial I ever tried in federal court, we individually, um, voidiered, uh, jurors about newspaper articles, mm -hmm. whether they saw news, um, uh, stories about the case that we were there trying with my dad. And that was it. We didn't talk about, was anybody talking about it on Facebook? We didn't right. talk about, did you see it on Netflix? We didn't talk about, did you see the HBO documentary? Did you watch a YouTube video that's covering it or a YouTube channel that's covering it? Did you watch TikToks on it? Literally, there are so many more ways to access things that are going on in these cases that the voir dire, the jury selection process takes so much longer. The jury questionnaires are longer. Everything is harder. Everybody in the back of their mind is, is doing exactly what you did. And the lawyers that lose, when they do interviews after the cases, they're saying mm -hmm. it is impossible that these jurors did not hear, mm -hmm. read, listen to, talk to somebody about this case. It is impossible. That's what the lawyers were saying after the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard case, because it was literally everywhere. And these jurors were not sequestered. Mm -hmm. So are we going to see more sequestration of jurors, which means the whole process is even harder. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see sequestration of jurors because I think judges don't want to put jurors in a box in a hotel room and keep them there from, away from their families. That's like last ditch act effort. Um, but I do think you're right. I think there's going to come a point where it is impossible to avoid the, the topics. And the reality is when you see social media, for the most part, it's like you say, it's sensationalized. So if somebody sees what they heard in the courtroom, which is based on the rules of evidence, but then they watch a TikTok and somebody's like, you saw that her left eye twitched when she tapped her right finger. That means she's lying. You've tainted that jerk. Exactly. You know, and, and that's and the you problem. You can never and fix that. 
Yeah. And, and people that are, you know, even people that are lawyers or judges or whatever, or have been juries in other cases, once they start to tell you something as truth, sometimes it's hard to overcome that. And there's no, and that's why, you know, the rules of evidence and what happens in trial, what can come in, what can't come in exactly what this podcast is about. Like, when do we open the door for certain evidence to come in that wouldn't come in otherwise? Well, so much of what you see on social media, so much of what people talk about, so much of what gag orders stop is evidence that would not come into trial. And if it can't come into trial and it can't pass the muster to get past all the rules and objections, then you should not be listening to it. You should not be looking at it. It should not be affecting your vote in a trial. And that's really what I think they're trying to protect. You know, and most people don't, and the people that are arguing against it, if they were in that defendant's seat, they would want it all shut down too. It would be the easiest question in the world. And that's why so many people are like, when are we going to see one of your trials? I'm like, probably never, because if I was my, I would never ask my client to do that. And if I was my client, if they wanted to do that, that would be one thing. If they wanted to invite cameras into the courtroom, great. I'd be all for it. But from their perspective, in our cases, we're talking about the death of a loved one. We're talking about their medical records, their psychiatric records, how this accident or wrongful death has affected them, the PTSD they've gone through, which yes, it's open and you can come sit in the courtroom, but why would we want to invite cameras and invite thousands, if not millions of eyes on a case that is very difficult for them? It's one of the most difficult parts of their lives. Most people don't want other people watching that. Right. And it's also a conflict from a professional standpoint for us because we represent those people. So our obligation, obviously, is to do the best we can to further their interests, not to be putting on a podcast while we're doing their case. Yeah, I would never ask somebody to to have cameras in a courtroom so that they could film me trying a case or film you trying a case or what. Like, if it happened, it happened, whatever. But sure. there's no way that I would be like, please, can we please put your three back surgeries on YouTube. So everybody can watch all the pain and suffering that you've gone through. That just, you know, to me, that's not, that's not really what it's about. And that's not really the purpose for it or, or of having uh, cameras in the courtroom, but hopefully we were able to answer most of everyone's questions today about this gag order, whether or not it's unique to this case, um, how it's been applied in other cases and how it's not even the most broad, uh, gag order. And it's not even the most restricting gag order that we have seen in other high profile cases. Pete, thanks for joining me. Until next time, that's all we got. Thanks for watching another episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you enjoyed the episode, please hit the thumbs up and share with your friends who may be interested here on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Tragos Law is our handle. And don't forget to listen to The Lawyer You Know podcast featuring new episodes every week. If you have a case you want to talk to us about, if it's a personal injury case, wrongful death, catastrophic injury, car accident, or slip and fall case, please email us at lawyeryouknow at gmail.com. And of course, all these links I just mentioned are included in the description below on this episode and every episode. So until next time, this is Peter Tragos, The Lawyer You Know.